Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have David Mundale with us. David is the founder and managing partner at Emerging Ventures. Previously, David has built, operated and exited four of his successful businesses in insurance and finance space over a 28-year period. To Emerging Ventures, he invests in emerging technologies like machine learning, NLP and artificial intelligence. Till date, he has invested in over 500 startups as an angel and as a fund manager. In this episode, we'll talk about David's story and how he started investing. Will AI replace all our jobs or will we have new jobs emerge for humans to do? We also learn about how David chooses the company he wants to invest in and investing in founders that can do more with less. We also get his perspective on the current slowdown and a lot more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Oh wait, if you haven't subscribed to VC Connects yet, please do and give us a 5-star rating if you find value in this episode. Now, let's start. Hey David, so good to have you on the VC 10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, my pleasure hosting you. So to start things off, can we have your story and how you started investing? So I'm David Mandel. I'm currently managing partner at Emerging Ventures Capital. And, um, you know, Long story short, um, you know, and back uh, from in the late 80s and early 90s uh, in university, I was um, in applied math and computer science, wanted to work in AI, and it just wasn't the right time. Uh, dropped out of the doctorate program, got my master's, but never stayed for the, for the doctorate and went into business and spent the next, you know, 25 to 28 years building um, four separate companies in insurance and finance, most of them underwriting type businesses, um, risk bearing entities uh, in finance and insurance. And um, fast forward and around 2011, 2012, so many years later, I started to see as an insurance executive and a finance executive vendors coming to us with uh, what seemed like some true artificial intelligence kind of applications, different kind of vendors than the traditional, say, experience of the world and so forth. Um, I was really intrigued. I started to get very intrigued by what was now possible. It's like, wow, what I wanted to be doing 25 years earlier now seems to be finally possible. That got me very excited to go back to my roots of technology and explore what's out there. And I started angel investing. I started attending conferences about AI and natural language processing, machine learning. Started talking a lot with these, what you would now call insure tech and fintech startups and doing some pilot programs with them with our insurance businesses and finance businesses. And um, just got all in on that. Within a few years, I became a very active angel investor in that space. And um, the rest is kind of history. I, you know, by 2014, I decided to exit the businesses that were remaining. I, by then, I've already exited previously two other businesses. And I had, at this time, a subprime auto lender and a auto insurance underwriter, which was the second largest non-standard auto insurance writer in California at the time, Alliance United Insurance Company. And we got investment bankers, did a process, exited both businesses, and uh, I became a full-time investor. And um, um, uh, deliberately, so I deliberately exited my 
operating businesses. And, uh, so I can become a full-time investor in technology because I just thought that technology had a, was at an interesting inflection point, uh, the intersection of the new emerging technologies between artificial intelligence and 5G that was on its way and um, just the you know improvements in GPUs and processing power and then blockchain that was emerging and everything else seemed like, wow, this is an amazing time again. We're at one of those points in time where this intersection of new technologies are enabling tech startups to combine them so easily and create disruption in almost every vertical of every industry that there is and solve real world problems or improve processes for just about every business out there in one way or another, often in ways I cannot even imagine uh, solving problems that we don't know exist. Uh, and when you dig deep into these different businesses. So it's just amazing to hear these stories each time. And I love going around to all the pitch events, accelerator programs and learning uh, what these businesses are solving. And I became a very prolific angel investor. I've invested, um, you know, by 2019, I've already invested in over 500 startups. Uh, and that's when, you know, I told the story to enough former associates from my prior life uh, where they're like, oh, that's cool. I want to do that too. And that's where I said, okay, I need to make a fund so others can co-invest with me. I also wanted that structure and I wanted to write some bigger checks. So it was getting very competitive by that time. Uh, so that's where Emerging Ventures was born from. Fund one was a small kind of proof of concept fund. I pulled together, you know, under 30 uh, former associates as limited partners. So we formed this partnership and pulled our money and that was fund one. And I just kept on doing what I was doing as an angel investor, but what was on thesis, I did through the fund. And we wind up making 28 investments in about a year and a half from uh, fund one. Um, needless to say that cut into COVID, you know, we started pre-COVID and uh, actually seeded most of the fund during COVID. About a third of it was pre-COVID and two thirds of it post-COVID uh, during COVID. And uh, so that was interesting to watch that happen. And, uh, you know, then that was done and the automatic response was, okay, fund two. So we started Emerging Ventures Fund two in early 2021 and decided to make a slightly larger fund and that will have a three-year investment period, kind of a traditional structure. And that's where we are today. Fund one has raised and deployed more than half of what. So we have slots for about 75 investments in fund two. And uh, we already made 41 investments and there's three that are going through due diligence for the past few months that we may or may not pull the trigger on, at least one or two of them. Uh, but we already deployed 41 and um, you know we're still looking to bring in a few more limited partners on to invest with us and we're still looking to fund more um but that's kind of the origin story and where we are today yep yeah that's an incredible story and uh and, and since you have that have, have had that investing thesis of uh, around emerging technologies like artificial intelligence ml and, and since right now while we are talking we have had some really interesting developments in the world of ai when open ai has come up uh, with 
and basically op opened it up to public a product called ChatGPT, wherein you can basically interact with the AI and it gives you pretty credible and pretty good answers to whatever you ask it to do and which would probably take a lot of work for a human to do that it, it produced the same level of output so uh, how, how do you look at that and how do you look at the implications of this uh, what does the future of ai look like uh, in in the sh uh, short uh, short term and in the long term do we see that it is going to replace a lot of jobs because right now it seems like a really credible scare to a lot of jobs already just with that one product release and this is just the beginning of it right so how do you look at things uh, as an investor so uh, I don't have a crystal ball any more than anyone else, but it does seem like each generation is just incrementally better and incrementally slowly improving the work efficiency so that the humans are doing less and less and the machines are doing more and more. And it's kind of a gradual slippery slope. It's not a switch that's flipped all at once where it goes from human to machine. Uh, it just slowly more and more is being assisted by machines and machines are more intuitive and uh, takes less effort from the humans. And, you know, for example, our fund one has a startup called Gapify, which is uh, uh, process robots for uh, accounting departments, for CFO units. And, you know, <clears throat> so we had all these accounting packages and they do all this work and humans had to do a lot of taking data out of one system and running Excel and then creating journal entries in other systems and then maybe doing some other double checking with third systems and balancing and work and they the CFO's role is still the CFO's role but maybe a CFO instead of a team of 30 people can have a team of 10 people because these new softwares that kind of behind the scenes do a lot of the manual labor, what used to be manual labor, really, it's not a lot of thinking labor. It's a lot of repetitive tasks of taking data from one system, matching it with data from another system, doing the um, you know reconciliations and so forth, taking, say, banking data and matching it with general ledger data. It's all just manual labor, really. It's a process. It's mechanical. Uh, and you know, looking for discrepancies and trying to follow up on discrepancies, all that, slowly the machines are doing more. They're not just reporting exceptions to humans, but now they're actually figuring out what the exceptions were the way a human would. Maybe even sending emails internally to other departments to follow up and say, hey, what was this expense? Can you look at it? the same thing a human would have done? The computers are doing it. And it seems so obvious and natural that no one thinks about it that, oh my God, the machines are taking over. But in fact, as the software gets smarter, the humans become more efficient. And as a result, you eventually can do a lot more with less humans. Uh, and, you know, it, it's really just a slow, gradual process and a slippery slope where, you know, it'll be normal. Uh, just like we no longer have armies of typists. I come from the insurance business. When I started, insurance companies literally still had rooms full of humans typing up policies. Uh, they weren't all computer generated. There is actually in some parts of the industry, rooms full of humans that were typing up policies. Uh, until many, many, until just, you know, the early 2000s, almost all indexing of images 
was done manually. They, you know, they would have they got into digital. They went from paper files. When I started, there was paper files. We had file rooms that were humongous, and we would have maybe 20, 30 file clerks running around pulling files out, giving them to underwriters, bringing them back to the file room, uh, putting cards in to show that a file was checked out. I mean, it was a crazy operation. That obviously went away and got replaced with kind of clunky scanners and large hard drives to store them on. And, uh, but, and then in the document management system, the indexing of all those scanned items was manually. You had rooms for people typing in, labeling those with policy numbers, insureds, names, whatever. And the same was true in every other industry. That, of course, eventually got replaced with the system automatically uh, using OCR and using barcodes and everything else. Just uh, today, there's practically no human indexers for that kind of work. It's almost all automated. It all gets matched up to policies, and it's expected to be that way. And no one ever expects to have a room full of humans that are doing that um, you know, data entry, per se. So that's where, like you said, you're correct, that slowly but surely, um, the human labor is moving upstream and the computers are taking over. Uh, the scary part that we all talk about is that our jobs, the kind of what we consider the thinking part, the decision making is also being automated. Uh, there's some law tech out there. So today in law firms, not only is the data entry and the file clerking and all that, but the research is getting automated. There's some great AI law tech that is doing the research better than any human can. It can scour through much quicker and much more volume to find every possible precedent case law and so forth. It can find any prior trial, can find everything much faster than a human can. Before a human would go to a search engine that was a, you know, a legal search engine for their whatever subscription they had that they pay a lot of money for and search for those and then find those cases, look at them, read each one, try to find the relevant material. Today, the computers do that. They check the cases. They find the relevant part. They quote you what you need. They kind of write up your paper for you, uh, give you the answers. The same thing with responding to routine inquiries, filing inquiries uh, with the courts. There's a startup that we looked at that was automating the whole process of managing court filings, uh, logging into every portal and dealing with managing appearances, responses, everything, uh, instead of paralegals, more efficiently, nothing slipping through the cracks, no one ever forgetting to follow up on the deadline. Uh, and so slowly, yes, in every field, everywhere that's being done, and we've, we've seen it, uh, not just the cool stuff, not just the automated drones and the autonomous cars and all that, which is coming too. And obviously truck drivers being replaced with autonomous, autonomous semis, that's the things you see on TV and that's the media headlines. But the the boring stuff behind the scenes is being replaced as well. Right, right. And and, uh, and on one hand, it's it's pretty exciting to see that okay, technology can do so much for us. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also kind of scary that every day is kind of getting better and better. And one day it probably might come for me. Like right now, it is coming for someone else. It is replacing maybe a typewriter job or someone else's job. But when it's going to come for me, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. All right, it's coming. It's coming for the lawyers. It's coming for. Um, it's coming for the analysts, for sure, already, which what we talked about. And it's also coming eventually for the executives, for the decision makers. It's already replaced supervision. In many call centers, the supervisor is actually an algorithm or, in a sense, AI robot that is 
doing the live supervision of call centers. Yeah, that's interesting. And so do you think that uh, there are going to be newer professions that will emerge? Uh, like we said, like there is uh, typewriters that are not any more relevant. So they're, they're probably employed in other professions now. So do you think it's the same thing is going to still happen, that there are going to be better professions emerging for humans to uh, do and uh, earn a living? Or, or uh, another thing can happen is that while machines are doing probably most of our work, uh, we can probably earn universal basic income because everyone cannot have an opportunity to get employment. That's the political side of it. I don't want to get into that, whether UBI is good or not. There's a lot of experiments going on. That is the big question. They say every prior revolution in technology has created new jobs. Every time they said, oh my God, there's no more factory work. What are these people going to do? And there was always something and it was always better. Uh, there are a lot of experts that are today saying that this time might be different. There might not be, you know, if there's so many jobs being displaced all at the same time, nothing is safe. Like even the creative jobs are not safe. Uh, we have tech startups that are doing automate, they're replacing ad agencies. They're doing automated uh, content generation and automated high volume AB testing on social media and with say Google ads and everything of different content, both graphic and text to see which get the best response and a much higher volume of frequency and efficiency than humans could. Uh, so it replaces ad agencies and the analysts at ad agencies that would do this work. And then and it's replacing, we have, uh, for example, a startup called uh, GoCharlie.ai uh, that is a generative AI. It creates content. It creates ads. You say, yeah, okay, make, make me an ad for this can of soda. And it will come up with some options uh, just by looking at the image and it will give you content. Uh, it will give you proposed captions and so forth. And they're doing pretty well. They're relatively new, but they're doing pretty well. And it's amazing. It's quite mesmerizing. Like you're talking about the GP, TP3 and all that. This is the same kind of technology, but it's their kind of narrow uh, application. So the actual creative part, uh, I'm not an investor in any of these, but we've seen the generative AI that generates art and it can generate art in the style of any master. And some of that is pretty darn good. Uh, I'm not a huge art aficionado, but from those who are, there's experts who are going gaga over this, where they look at some of that and they're like, wow, you know, that looks like so-and-so's work. I would, you know, there's some really amazing. Uh, so the question is even the, you know, originally they would say, oh, well, the computers are going to take over all the boring stuff and we're just going to be creative. But the computers can generate the output. I don't want to say the computers can be creative. That maybe is not a true statement today, but the computers but they uh, can mimic the output of what you expect from a creative. If they can generate original music, um, like original, there is a startup I looked at that does original, that does original music scores for movies much, much more efficiently, you know, as far as creating just the right ambiance, the right dynamics, the right like crescendos where you want to, you know, um, emphasize some dramatic scene coming up and so forth. It completely generates original um, music that is completely synced to a particular scene 
and it does it instantly. Uh, work that would take days for a human, it does in minutes. And it does it often, what they would say, better, depending on how you find better for that. But that the end quality is more than acceptable to the highest standards of film production. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, we are living in very exciting times. And a kind of a flip side of that coin is kind of scare, but I think we're going to be just fine. We will have more professions emerge and we'll be doing better work than what we are doing right now and involved in more meaningful professions, right? And, uh, and talking about uh, the fund aspect, so uh, the pitches that are coming to you, how on what basis are you evaluating these uh, investment opportunities? What do you look for in a company before making the investment decision? Yeah, good question. Um... So we look at usually a minimum of 300 pitch decks in a month. And it's a combination of a lot of direct inbounds. I'm an investor in many, many startups, and I've looked at many others. So they, you know, every startup founder has friends that are startup founders. And uh, so it's, I get a lot of direct inbound. And then besides that, other VCs are always sharing deals and they want co-investors or stuff that's too early for them. They send to me. Uh, so that I can send it back to them a year later. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of synergy going on. And then most of our deal flow, at least the qu higher quality deal flow, is from the accelerator programs. Uh, over the years, I've looked at hundreds of programs throughout the world and found the ones that I really like over time and continue to attend those and follow those and provide mentoring and so forth, get involved with those and, and shy away from the ones that obviously weren't a good match for us because we don't have infinite time. Uh, so we see hundreds of pitches and can easily dismiss most of them because first we need them to be on our thesis and then to say what we're looking for uh, what we look for is execution. It really comes down to one word. It comes down to execution. Um, I want them to do a lot with a little, uh, a little time and a little money. Uh, it's just some startups are amazing at just getting shit done. Uh, you know, uh, they I, I just completely amazed me. I'm completely at awe and I'm kind of jealous compared to when I was in business and how fast they can get stuff done. That you know, they can form a company from an idea and six months later, they can have a product. They can have an MVP. They can have some Fortune 100 uh, pilot programs going on. And you know, Traction's like, how did you build this and ship it and get people to pay for it all in such a short time? And you know, six months is really, really fast. And that's the flow. And usually it's a year and a half to two years. But they just do it before even often raising any money because you don't need a lot of money to get started. They just go, you know, you get some uh, often free cloud computing because they're all bring have programs for startups where they subsidize the early years to get startups hooked on their system, whether it's Google or Amazon or you know IBM and so forth. They're all giving away resources, so you have almost unlimited free resources initially, and they just go and they set up a startup and spin it up, and they build. And they start just um, iterating. They show it to early customers. They find contacts and they just, they do it. And that's amazing. That's what I look for. Uh, you know, so I'm looking for startups that are solving real world problems using emerging technology. That's our thesis. But then what we look for within that, my, my uh, underwriting is 100% about execution. I'm looking for those who can execute. 
which is why I can't invest pre-launch. I can't invest in ideas. I, I don't know how to look at a founder and their idea and know who's going to succeed and who won't. So I would be horrible at running like an incubator kind of program because I just can't tell them apart. And what I've learned over the years is the ones who succeed are often the ones who would have been the least likely to succeed. It's like I go back, I look at these, and I say, okay, if I would have looked at them a year ago, would I invested in them? And often the answer is no way. <laughs> they didn't seem very likely. They didn't seem like the most articulate and the most together. They're often the, the, the oddballs, you know, the ones that are least likely to succeed, both on where they are physically, geographically, uh, how they present themselves. Uh, and they often just, you know, somehow get it done. The ones who did get it done are amazing. I can give you an example uh, in the drone space, which is a difficult space because it's hardware and software. It's taking AI and adding to it you know, all the hardware mechanics, which is a lot more difficult than just software. There is an AI, there's a robotics, there's a, um, a delivery, autonomous delivery to hard to reach places uh, using drones. There's a startup in our fund one. When I first met them, I was introduced, by the way, to them by another startup in, uh, portfolio founder of mine. And this was a friend of his in a similar space, but not competitive. Uh, so first of all, it was introduction by someone I trust. But when I met them, they weren't very articulate. It was in the early days of Zoom. And, you know, it's hard to, he wasn't making great eye contact on the Zoom, wasn't, uh, had a strong accent, wasn't very articulate. I can barely understand him. And yet, you know, so I would have dismissed him a year earlier, but yet they assembled a team, they built an MVP, and that's all okay. It's like, okay, you built an MVP, but how are you going to get anyone to pay for it? Well, what sold me is he had two multi-million dollar contracts. He had, and with the top, top, and not just pilot programs, but actual contracts. And one was with big oil, one of the three big oil companies to deliver parts to their oil rigs out of the ocean. The other was with the U.S. Navy uh, to deliver, obviously, to uh, aircraft carriers and so forth, uh, which is a paradigm shift. You know, instead of taking a helicopter, it costs $4,000 back then, probably more now, to do a round-trip flight in a helicopter. It doesn't matter if you just want to deliver a $5 part. But if you need that screw to fix something, and the only way to get there was a helicopter, and that would be a $4,000 round trip. Uh, they were doing it for $200 as a service with their autonomous drones. And uh, what got me excited on that one, and here's what I, what I tell you what I look for, is they did a lot with the littles, the perfect example of it. They've spent, before I invested in them, so we came in for the seed round that their pre-seed, They've raised a total before us of about $2 million and they got to where they are, meaning building a working prototype and then winning a contract from the Navy. They did that with basically $2 million total spend to date uh, over about a three-year period, I believe, before we came in. Two and a half, three years that they were working on this in some garage in Austin, Texas. Uh, at the same time, a very well-funded Silicon Valley startup has just finished raising a Series B, a $30 million Series B at a $200 million valuation. They beat out that company for this Navy contract. That was their main competition for the Navy contract. This, you know, uh, so it's a David and Goliath kind of story. And, you know, I always bet on the David. The, you know, so 
the hungry, less funded, but yet, you know, very high execution. I bet on them. And, you know, and since they've done well, they've gone up to gone on to raise a large Series A about a year later, and they've renewed their Navy contract. They eventually, uh, last year, became got full authorization to autonomously land. They were the first private company ever to get, uh, according to one of their press releases, to get permission to land autonomously on an aircraft carrier, on a live working aircraft carrier uh, in the ocean. So, um, you know, they're... You know, and we'll see. I mean, nothing is for sure. We'll see what anything can happen. But that's an example of execution. They took a lot less money than their competitions and in a short period of time built something that outperforms the competition. So that's who I choose to bet on. I bet on the guys who do more with less. And when someone comes to me, I see a pitch deck that says, oh, yeah, we've been doing this research and we have. We spent $5 million in six years. We secured all these patents. And now we want to raise around so that we can hire a team and build an MVP. It's like, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, because I have all these startups that in 18 months just built it. Why? With a lot less money. So I don't want to invest in the guys who are maybe coming out of academia or maybe coming out of another enterprise, uh, you know, a large where they're doing things slowly, where they feel like, oh, we write these business plans and then we do our research. And then eventually five years later, after we spent $5 million, we're going to hire a team and build an MVP. It's like, no, you just build it. So that's a disconnect in, um, in mode and, and, and thinking process. So 100%, we look for execution, nothing but execution. And of course, I mean, that's not enough. Of course, they have to be able to be venture scale. It has to be the right kind of product for the right industry. It has to show that they can scale. But everyone always shows a large Sam and Tam, and everyone shows that, oh, this could be billions of dollars and this and that. So that's a kind of a given in every startup pitch. But what differentiates them is about how much have you done? How quickly have you done it? How little money have you done it with? Uh, how nimble are you? And it's especially going to be important now when fundraising is harder. They need to be able to make money stretch out they need to be able to make what they have in the bank go further right absolutely yeah that's that's completely true like uh, right now like the funding environment isn't very uh you know good for founders you can just go out there and everyone will give you money it's, it's harder than it was before right so you got to be more careful with how you're spending your money and like you said uh do more with less right that that's the way to go right now and uh, my uh, last main question for you would be before we move on to the rapid fire round, like uh, is since you have been investing for so many years and you have had your own companies before. So uh, I want to understand what uh, change changes uh, do you wish, wish to see uh, in the startup ecosystem and the VC ecosystem in general? Um, not sure I'm looking for, if I'm wishing for any changes. I'm glad in some way that the crazy Silicon Valley rush and valuations is over. I mean, you know, everyone being able to leave a startup and start their own and get instant funding was kind of crazy. It was unsustainable. So I'm glad that that era is over. I am concerned about what next year brings. I hope it doesn't just go to the other extreme. The pendulum always swings too far in the other direction. And that's what I'm fearful of. I'm hoping we have a soft landing and that you know, I mean, I guess for selfish reasons, I have a portfolio of hundreds of seed stage startups and I want them to be able to raise their Series A 
we already had two this year that were supposed to raise a Series A. They were on track for it to hit all the milestones. And then as they're going through the process, the kind of goalpost moved under their feet and they either had their term sheet withdrawn last minute or were just unable to even get the term sheet that they were kind of promised before that would be a no problem if they hit those milestones. And they're now scrambling and uh, at least one of them is going to shut down because they ran out of cash to make payroll, which is unfortunate. It was a really good company. Uh, the other one's raising an insider bridge round and it seems like they're getting support from that and we'll see what happens next. Uh, it's unfortunate. Hopefully next year doesn't get worse and next year goes back to some new normal. A lot of that I think will depend on the macroeconomics and I have no idea where that's going to be. So what worries all of us is, you know, uh, if that there may be a complete freeze, it, there we hope there isn't. We hope that it, there's still a lot of money out there in, in venture, but the, the firms are sitting on it to kind of support their own portfolio companies. So they're holding back on making investments in new portfolio companies. At least that's what we're hearing. We're hearing that they're being, you know, the startups that we're talking to, the founders I'm talking to every day, when they go out there, they're all saying, yes, we're, we're investing, but we're holding off right now because we're concerned because we have our own portfolio companies that we want to reserve this money to support. So we're kind of holding back on releasing money to new companies and adding to our portfolio, even though we're continuing to look at portfolio companies. So, you know, um, if we have this conversation in three months, uh, maybe we'll have some more clarity. As of today, it's a big uncertainty. Right, absolutely. Uh, we, we are in very uncertain times right now. And like the fundraising, fundraising environment isn't, isn't that great right now, but uh, this, this is the, the test of the tough, like who's the tough will survive this time and get through it. And like always, there is light on the other side, hopefully, right? And now moving on to the closing round, wherein uh, I'll ask you five quick questions about the fund uh, and you have to give five quick answers. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So the first one is what are the sectors and regions you invest in? Okay. Um, we invest in US, Canada and Israel-based emerging tech startups, which we defined as uh, mostly startups using the convergence of emerging technologies to solve real-world problems. Got it. And what's the typical stage you invest in? Pre-seed and seed, but pre-seed is not pre-launch. You need to have a real product and some early traction to show that there's demand for the product and that you know how to sell it. Got it. And what's the typical check size you put in? Uh, from our current fund, we're writing checks from 100,000 to 250,000. Our typical check's been around 150,000. Got it. Uh, and uh, where can founders pitch you? Emerging.vc is our website. And there's a contact us form. And a, you can fill that out and attach a pitch deck to it. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and um, my own blog uh, David Mandel.blog or also just Mandel.blog. I have both domains. Uh, you can find me there with links to everything else. Uh, awesome. And uh, last one is where can our listeners follow you? LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm at Mandel Angel. Um, uh, the two best places. Awesome. I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, David. Uh, it was a pleasure hosting you and happy investing. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Bless you. Same to you.